The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. Everyone has a completely different perspective on the same exact moment, even when experiencing them together. I can meet anybody wherever they are in that moment because people drink for all circumstances and all reasons. The voice you heard at the top of the show is David Powell. He's with a little distillery we like called Hudson Whiskey, and he will be joining us in just a moment to talk about all things elixir and mixed. And uh, he's got a little experience in the trenches. He spent 10 years in some of uh, Manhattan's more illustrious watering holes. He will talk about that. Speaking of illustrious watering holes, I'm joined by two gentlemen who you will often find in many of them. David Gravers from Cool Hunting. He's to my left and to my right. Scott Alexander. Who's hey, hey. For and drunken with just about every editor in Manhattan. It's an occupational hazard The uh, in, in the editorial game. You do end up in bars. Yeah, it still is true, isn't it? I mean, it was for a long time, it was like, oh, no, 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 we can't really do that anymore. We can't have the three drink martini and go back to the office. <laughs> well, you can't have the three you drinks don't remember the in the I'm office anymore. To. But right. Yeah, yeah. you got to go down the street now. And David, for a living, you guys at Cool Hunting drink all of this stuff. We so drink you're... alcohol in the office, and then we review bars and restaurants afterward. Your office, tell the truth, looks like a saloon. Yeah, my back bar is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> is there any time at Cool Hunting that you do not drink? <laughs> Very good question. I'm going to need to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take your time. Uh, the, the renaissance of the modern cocktail and what it owes to the past is one of the things that David will talk about. And, and also, what are the, you know, during the Sex and the City days and during all the different television shows that come along make different drinks more popular? Uh, we, we obviously are drinking more martinis because of Don Draper and uh, the Mad Men and Old Fashioned. They, they'd say old martini, fashion. but the Old yeah, Fashioned yeah, yeah. was really his one of his big go-to. Sex in the City almost ruined us with those Apple teenies and Cosmopolitans. Oh, we yeah. recovered. Guess, you yeah, should be grateful we recovered. Back. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not drinking the Cosmo anymore. <laughs> do we, do we want to have a little side bet on what we think the most popular cocktail these days is? The Let's Manhattan. start with our millennial. The Manhattan is the... I'd say Manhattan 1, Negroni 2. Negroni, Negroni. was a uh. super ascendant just a couple of years ago. Uh, the yeah. spritz. The spritz is everywhere. Aperol spritz is, is probably bigger than a Negroni now. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's more on trend now. So You're it's right. not a vodka drink? Vodka is not the... Vodka is still the most the consumed spirit. alcohol in the world. It is. That's for sure. Especially but at your Cocktail house. culture differs from that a little bit. Cocktail culture has really been reclaiming booze from vod- the tyranny of vodka. Vodka soda became cocktail culture brown or clear what's the what who's winning there who's winning in the the spirit world is it the bourbons and well it's it's really the the rums and vodkas and rum and tequila have both been really rising categories in the last 10 years um but then even since then in the last last three or four years mezcal is is making a big uh, entry into the market but don't you feel like dark spirits are the powerhouse right now and dark spirits toppled the vodka dominance of the 80s. Yes, vodka comes up in the 80s, uh, stomps everyone. It came up in the 80s senseless. with me many times. <laughs> <laughs> was not happy about it. Uh, in the 90s, you started to get the craft uh, whiskey movement uh, happening, craft bourbon happening. Craft scotch has always been a craft liquor, but uh, craft bourbon started in the 90s, really came on strong in the aughts, and then rum and tequila come on in the teens. Are we drinking more because of Uber as a world, as a nation? I mean, it, it certainly takes one of the 
most heinous parts of the equation. That's uh, right. Knocks it's, it it's out. permission. It's like, and you, you're going to plan to like, um, I can, I don't need to drive. Right. Maybe I don't own a car anymore. I mean, we're sitting in New York where people have always been able to ha- hail a cab or, or lay on a subway track or some get home in some <laughs> way. Uh, but around the country now, I think the Uber awareness is making everybody sort it's of... It's never been easier to call a cab to get you home. Yeah. Uber is an enabler, but millennials are drinking less. And because of that, the industry as a whole is suffering. Millennials ha- don't have the desire to drink in the way that generations before do. Really, the... They'll, oh, they'll learn. <laughs> <laughs> David, if millennials are drinking less, what are they drinking with whom? Well, first of all, White Claw. We've seen this billion-dollar boom of hard seltzer. Which wow. is- oh, you mean Zima? I mean <laughs> White Claw, yeah. right. White but Claw. It, even though White Claw is in, in this ridiculous emergence right now, millennials in general are not drinking because they're not seeking out the experiences as much. Social media and digital life actually is interfering. And these numbers are just beginning to come out, but... I do find it to be startling. I'm a local. Like, I have a bar that I go to that I enjoy sitting at the counter and and living my life. That's not going to be the norm forever. If we are drinking less, we're drinking better. We're looking for more expensive uh, spirits, and we're trying to find that little chemist who can make this unbelievable little drink we've never had before. Uh, I'll be interested to ask our guest what his favorite thing to make is and what he thinks in the next five years the most popular drink will be. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, uh, this is someone who's been around, seen a bar or two. I'd be curious to see what his favorites are. We will try and distill from him the top five uh, from the, sorry, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, We will try and get from him what he thinks the best five bars are, not just here in the United States, but maybe around the world. And as I said, he has seen it all because he was a bartender. One question I'm going to ask him, I'll ask you guys, is there really grain alcohol behind the bar? Of every bar. Everclear? So that if they have somebody that's a little too much trouble, they can knock them out. (laughs) That's a question for him. Yeah. I I would like to know the answer to that, too. Our lawyers are standing by every time we do this podcast, and that's a good example of why. We will also talk about uh, the 60s. I mentioned uh, Don Draper a little while ago. Uh, The throwback to uh, American cocktails, of course, on the Accutron show, we talk a little bit about the watches that people wore during those days, and the rebranding and relaunch of of the Accutron. And I think the uh, Hudson folks have something that they're tying in, believe it or not, to this incredible new relaunch. So we will talk about all of that and more when David Powell joins us after this. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960, from New York City to around the world. David Powell, welcome to the podcast. We were talking before you got here about the whole term of what a brand ambassador is, and you do it in our favorite category. We're big spirits fans here. So walk us through your professional resume that got you to the point of being able to now walk into bars and represent liquor. The resume starts out kind of like this. Um, I was, at the time, an aspiring rapper um, who had 
gotten uh, show and prove in double XL, which was like a pretty prestigious national article unsigned hype in the source, which was like something that I grew up looking up to had some videos on MTV. And I was kind of like, in a lot of ways, the creative director of my own career, like I would be the person approving all of the artwork for all of our releases. I was the person putting together the marketing plans and working with uh, a lot of the the blogs, which were emerging at the time to make sure that they covered what we were doing what I was doing more specifically, and then my team, you know, as a function of me as the artist. And I wasn't making any money. Like, let's be really honest about that. Um, it sounded so good right up <laughs> in the right. Right. It's like, yeah. wow. It's really so exciting amazing. until you get down to the, you know, straight bottom line P&L portion of it. What en- so what ended up happening, not making any money, I'm living with an ex-girlfriend who bartended her way from graduating from Syracuse with a degree in journalism to coming down to New York to be a writer. And um, she was at a magazine that was getting ready to go out of print. Print budgets are very different than online budgets. And her CEO started embezzling their funding, knowing that it was going to dry up. And so her salary decreased by about 30 grand in the course of like three months. And we were living together. And she looked at me one day and was like, I'm going to need you to help out. Here's my resume. You're smart enough to figure it out when you get there. Cut it in half. Put me as your first reference and you'll, you'll figure it out. And so I had two interviews. Um, and these were both for barback positions. It's not like I was going in there to, to lie and try and become a bartender from day one. Um, the first interview was a two question interview. And it was, so how do you make a Cosmo? <laughs> now, you, you know, I, all I had been up until this point was a consumer and, and not on the, on the other side of it. So I was like, you know, it's cranberry juice and it's vodka and it's lime juice. And there's something else. I just can't think of it right now. It's like, all right. And how do you make a margarita? I was like, man, it's like lime juice and tequila. And I'm like, man, that third ingredient. I just, and it was a really smart interview because if you didn't know triple sec, then all of your experience must have been BS. Right? <laughs> so he very quickly dispensed with me. And my second interview was uh, at this kind of unknown cocktail bar in New York called Death and & Company. And they didn't want me to know anything. In fact, it was actually better that I didn't know anything because then I could basically use triple second death and co. They beat you. Right. They're like, what are you doing? Touching things, you know, but it was it was a great piece foundationally for me because it allowed me to start taking pride in the parts of the drinks that I made on Sundays. uh, This gentleman, Jason Luttrell, um, who was actually like president of the New York USBG at the time. um, But he was the guy that I opened with on Sundays. Eventually, he'd just be like, what do you want to learn today? Right. And then we went through, you know, a military training on the daiquiri and the old fashioned and why they're the only two drinks that anybody ever needs to know how to make, because everything else is just an application of technique to recipe. So he was putting a foundation of technique into me about maybe three weeks later. Uh, Marcus Samuelson was getting ready to open Jenny's Supper Club under Red Rooster in the basement. Sure. And so I interviewed for that. Um, as a bartender, because I had just been through basically AP bartending at Death and Co. I was like, there's there's no way that I don't deserve at the very least an opportunity to make all these mistakes with my hands, you know, and get into the higher portion of the tip pool. And I'll never forget this um, gentleman, Charles Washington, who was the opening manager of Ginny's. He took me aside after the interviews before they invited people back for training. And he was like, listen, man, um, everybody with your experience really wants to kind of bring you on as a bar back and then reevaluate you as a bartender in, you know, like six months, let's say. But I realized that someone's going to have to actually take a chance on you in your career. And I want to be able to look back and say that that was me. And so all praise due to to Charles for for putting that kind of putting himself on the line in that way. 
Uh, he you're was, still at Ginny's. You're still under the Red Rooster. Yeah. This is this, that same place. And, so he was and by the rewarded. way, for people listening, Red Rooster is in Harlem. What's part of the restaurant Renaissance up there. Marcus Samuelson now a fixture on all of the uh, cooking shows and channels. But that was the turnaround spot up that there. Was that, was huge, the hot, that was the Genesis, really. Like we were on the on the Eater uh, heat map. But from Red Rooster, my beverage director there decided to leave and open a restaurant with a couple partners. That restaurant was called Pearl and Ash. We then got a two-star, uh, three-star New York Times review, which basically said that it was the highest functioning kitchen in a wine bar that Pete Wells had ever visited in New York, which was the Goodness. greatest backhanded compliment that you could possibly give yep. in such a glowing review, um, <laughs> which led to our wine director, Patrick Capiello, getting the greatest job ever as uh, like a wine, I guess he was a wine contributor for Playboy which was uh, pretty exciting. I tell Patrick every time I see him, I still want to be like him when I grow up <laughs> just for that. Um, I can say for all of us here and probably those listening, we're pretty thrilled your rap career went nowhere because obviously yeah, you know, this funny. is what you were supposed to do. I was this thinking is great. about it. I was thinking about it uh, last night. Someone like Chance the Rapper, you know, like that very much was my lane of like someone that you could tell is very thoughtful, very smart about their decisions that they're making musically it was just like, I didn't get that supplementary push of having somebody like Kanye or Pharrell or someone like that in that moment to legitimize it to the rest of the world before. But what if they Chance did. had become a bartender? <laughs> By chance, it could have happened. You know? I mean, who knows? What kind of cocktails are we missing out on, though? That's what I want to know. Man, probably like a lot of Malort. he'd have been super chicago with it is my Uh, guess been like a lot of malort reductions and yeah it could could have been really what do you like to make what is your favorite cocktail to make for people for people my favorite cocktail to make for people is whatever they're in the mood for but it is as you say whatever they want to be drinking right i mean that's the heart of hospitality you're there to give that person a good time whatever a good time means to that person yeah and it's completely subjective i think that's one of the biggest things that, that I learned through my career in music that I transferred over to my career behind the bar is that everyone has a completely different perspective on the same exact moment, even when experiencing them together. So I can't be so stuck on wanting you to have a certain experience. I need to be almost like that Bruce Lee theory of like water so that I can meet anybody wherever they are in that moment. Because people drink for all circumstances and all reasons. You drink when you're happy. You drink when you're sad. You drink when you're mourning. You drink when you're celebrating. What's like, the weirdest thing you've ever had to do to meet someone in that uh, in their in the place where they were? Man, the the weirdest thing that I ever had to do to meet somebody where they were would be like look up a recipe for a drink that I knew that I didn't want to make that I was capable of making something better than, <laughs> only because they knew that that drink had seven spirit ingredients in it, like. There's a drink called a, a Red Devil, which is some level of a degeneration of a Long Island iced tea. And this was mega popular at Red Rooster because, you know, people expected you to serve it in a pint glass and they knew that it was like 70% alcohol. And we'd all just be like, we have no idea what that is. And I Googled it once and I immediately deliberately forgot it so that (laughs) you can judge me as a bartender all you want for not knowing this drink but it's all good i'm I'm okay with that i'm smiling on the inside (laughs) i think a lot of us are familiar with the role of a bartender for a customer but can you talk a little bit about the role of a bartender for a brand and how a bartender can make or break the future of, of a brand especially if it's a smaller spirit yeah absolutely i think 
we all like now that I am on the other side of the spirits industry on the supplier side, as opposed to on the trade side, I think we all kind of know and value the opinions of bartenders around the country and around the world. Right. Because there's a difference between introducing something to somebody two ounces at a time versus an ask when they're at a bottle shop, which says purchase this 26 ounces at a time. Right. So the, the bar is really where you get your trial in folks, this is where I might be able to suggest something based on what you're already you've already shown me that you're into and open up, you know, a new category or a new brand to you or something that is complementary to what I've already diagnosed that you like. You know, like I was very into creating progressions for people in their drinks. So I'd let you hold on to the menu for your first one and I'd guide you through it if need be. But then based on what you ordered, I knew the next three drinks so I would never need to ask you what you wanted next. Now, if I failed on that second one, then we can go back to, to stage one and you can choose again. But more often than not, that second one has been, it's a variation of what you just had that takes you to a slightly different place. And then we get further and further away from where you started. But then you're expanding all those things that you can now go back to that same bar the next time and be like, wait, I Man, love this I game. That. So let, let's try it in practice. Yeah, so yeah. if I'm a vodka martini guy and I come in and that's my first drink with like, let's say dirty. Get out. Uh, <laughs> now get, get, out, get the hell out of here. Uh, what's my second drink? So, so in the dirty vodka martini situation where I would probably go is like a gin savory stirred cocktail, like something that still has a bit of that like olive brine salinity that you're looking for, right? Because a vodka martini is really just shaking or stirring vodka. Most people don't add vermouth to it. So I don't have to worry about that level of herbaceousness that vermouth as a fortified wine is bringing in. All I'm really playing off of is your spirit base, which doesn't really give me any clues because it's vodka and it's kind of meant to hide. And then the other dominant flavor that's going on, which is the olives, right? So that gives me a base to play with. So I'd probably go, there's a drink that's called a Gordon's Cup. Uh, Gordon's Cup is like muddled cucumber and uh, lime wedges with some Worcestershire in there. It's like mm. the better version of a Bloody Mary, and right? Gin? And gin, yeah. right? So like so Gordon's jump Gin the track is where on it came from. Exactly. But I'm putting so many things around it right. that you're not really even gonna notice that your spirit base is gin. Because really what I'm probably gonna try and get you back to at the end, selfishly, because I know it's you, Bill, is I'm gonna try <laughs> and get you back to a traditional gin martini, right? right? And then create the contrast between where you started as vodka dirty to gin clean and classic. This guy's done this before. Yeah, I get that feeling. <laughs> there's a place in my neighborhood. I live way out in Brooklyn, and it's and there's a place that opened. It's only three months old, but it feels like it's been there forever. And they have a really competent craft cocktail menu. Because I, I walked in there, I was like, okay, this is new. It's a little divey. It's a little whatever. Okay, what? I was like, they got a cocktail menu. They got a ten dollar cocktail menu. Yeah, they got a ten dollar cocktail menu, and it's good. Yeah, like it was really, really remarkable. I just I, I see so many variations on variations on variations. How much originality is there in the cocktail market right now? Are people actually bringing innovative cocktails to the market? I think originality probably expresses itself most in ingredient combinations, flavor profiles, where you're sourcing from, you know, what ends of the earth are you going to to find something new? Um, where we're sitting right now, there's a great resource for that around the corner, Calustians which is where oh, most New York bartenders- Best store in New York. And if you're, if you're a smart head of a program in New York, 
you know Calustians very well and you're probably there once a season like what can I play with right because <laughs> they just consolidate the world really neatly into this two floor shop where you can get teas if you want to do infusions or syrups you can get dried herbs you can get dried fruit you can you know they you have can get a, a giant bushel of dried roses yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they have a really extensive selection so I think right because there there's very little change that you can do to ratios that are kind of perfect right like so two one three quarter for you know the daiquiri it's pretty perfect like yeah. you're not going to change it from two one three quarter to something better i can the almost two being the it. liquor the one being the lime and the three quarter being the garnish or being, being uh the, your sweetener the sweetener yeah right, so okay. your simple syrup like you know two three quarter three quarter like so these are ratios that certain bartenders have tattooed on them because they're <laughs> legit that important, you know? And so I had, cre I figured out this really awesome way of developing for myself. It was probably one of the most challenging things that I set out to do during my career, which was like, I'm going to take classic cocktails, classic templates, drinks that I love, and I'm going to gut renovate them, change every single ingredient. And all I'm keeping is the ratio. So like I did a Martinez, uh, Martinez is Traditionally, old time gin, orange bitters, maraschino, and and triple sweet, sweet vermouth and sweet vermouth, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a damn triple sec again. God damn it! Um, and so what I did with that was I switched the bitters from orange to bitter mint hibiscus. I did Sue's instead of maraschino. I did fino sherry instead of sweet vermouth, and then I used creme de mezcal instead of old time gin. And the drinks, if you put the two of them next to each other, they look exactly the same. And the flavor profile is almost exactly the same, but every single ingredient is different, like except for the lemon peel garnish. And Megan literally said to me, that's too smart. Nobody's going to get it. <laughs> right. And it never made it on a menu. But I also it's have a smart. pocket full of those recipes that, you know, if I ever decide to open up my but own But that is, den, it's like for the heads. There's yeah. like, there's certain sneakers that only someone who is like way down the rabbit hole on sneakers, there's certain watches where someone who's only yeah. who's way down the rabbit hole on watches is going to appreciate these things. But then is there that kind of like secret society thing where you slide something across to a certain person oh, yeah. who you know knows yeah, yeah. and they go, oh, dang. And the person next to him on the bar would never be able to tell it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and then on the opposite side of that, I, one of the other ones that I did was a rosé old fashioned. And that was insane. Like a clear pink old fashioned <laughs> for summer. It was it was insane, but they flew because people just didn't understand. But also in Rose very on so trend. curious. Yeah. We're talking to David Powell about spirits. He has a great job. He was behind the bar for 10 years. Now he's in bars uh, with Hudson Distillery. And my question for you is that we've been really, really in the weeds about the New York area. And people listening to this are now writing down where they need to visit when they come <laughs> here. So thanks for that. But if you aren't coming here and you're just walking into a, a bar, a hotel bar or a corner bar, uh, how do you know a good bartender from a bad bartender? Uh, that's really easy. Just order a daiquiri or an old fashioned from them. It's the reason why they're the only two drinks that any bartender needs to know how to make. Because one, if you see any fumbling or doubt or questioning, then you already kind of know. Um, and if you get that drink and you know that, you know, it just doesn't seem right. Like th th those recipes have been vetted for over 150 years. So if you get a daiquiri and it's horrible, then chances are that's on the hands and not on the recipe. Um, and in those instances, 
I know that that means that I'm probably just on a shot in a beer night. You know, and <laughs> right. there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's the backup team. Just enjoy right. the spirit right. on yeah. its own. Yeah. yeah. Right. You don't need to mix it up for me. You know, and that's yeah. and that's the thing that sometimes I love cocktail culture, but it's the spirits that underlie it sometimes can get a little lost there. And it's it's that quality there is really important. Agreed. Um, I've always felt like um, it's one of the best values for money in collecting for people who like to collect stuff. They collect sneakers, they collect watches, collect pens, they collect all kinds of things. I collect liquor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because that's a it's, thing. It's a really it's easy thing. A thing, and it's way bigger than than you probably imagine. Not those decorative, like no, uh, no. We're talking like bottles things from that... the '50s and '40s and really? '30s. Yeah. yeah. And for not that crazy of an investment, like if you want to buy a really nice pen and you want to spend eighty dollars, you're not going to get a very nice pen. If you want to buy a really nice bottle of whiskey. Get a nice bottle of whiskey for eighty bucks. Like, yeah. like there's just a whole different echelon of being able to get into. It's very accessible to me. Uh, where do you think the best values are in in collecting liquor these days? There are so many distilleries that have their ultra high end. Like, this is our holy grail expression. Yeah. But every single one of those distilleries has their kind of low end entry level, which are usually named after the distillery that it's produced at. Yeah. They have their kind of general market entry. They have their, you know, premium entry and then they have like their super premium entry. So it's it's segmented even on the shelves for you already. Um, and I think that at a lot of the better bottle shops, the people that are working there care a lot about what they stock. Yep. And they're happy to answer those questions and to find you something. Talk to your local liquor store. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. What's right. the most expensive drink you ever tasted and was it worth it? Man. We always see in the news about somebody's got a $10,000 martini that's got like gold yeah, A lot of times they're $10,000 because they put a diamond yeah, ring in it. That's cheating. Like, we want well, the actual liquor well to be worth it. gold flake in, in yeah, it okay. and like, okay. Um, I've seen a lot of that on, on 2 Chain's Vice show. Um, oh, like, yeah, yeah. He's like, man, I've, I've eaten and drank so much gold since we started this show. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's in um, me. For me, probably the most expensive drink that I've had would be 1960s Boulevardier at the office in Chicago. So every ingredient was from the 60s. The vermouth was, the Campari was, and the bourbon was. Uh, and this is really interesting because, yes, you're paying a premium for the fact that these things aren't necessarily made this way anymore. But it's also just like a really tangible way of drinking history. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, like that's kind of the way that I digested it. It, it. I didn't drink it slowly because it was expensive. I drank it slowly because I just wanted to understand what was going on. And it was a new experience. And I was really excited by it. Well, that. it brings you into the moment in that way that smoking a great cigar like, yeah. forces you to say, this is literally on fire. This drink is in the same way. It's going away. It's only existing yeah. for this little moment. So and you're able to kind of time travel almost in that moment yeah. to the 60s. For sure. That's a really cool thing. Did you feel like there were any differences between a conventional? Uh... Um, the Campari was definitely different because that's when the coloring was coming from Cochineal. smashing. But yeah, exactly. Right. So that was that was really interesting to experience. Um, the the baseline smashing bugs. Yeah, like the baseline <laughs> characteristics of the drink, not terribly terribly okay. different. Um, you know, is there something different about whiskey from the sixties? Quite possibly. Yeah. Um, when you well, put for sure. Things I mean, it. whiskey probably has changed a lot, especially bourbon has changed a lot. Scotch has probably changed a little bit less. Yeah. But bourbon has, the bourbon industry from the 50s to the present has changed radically. Now, something like, I also had um, like some 1950s yellow chartreuse. Now, that 
changes Wait, tremendously. Wait, there was a yellow chartreuse as well as a green chartreuse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's both. There's always been both. The yellow isn't green that's gone bad? <laughs> no. Nah, it, for some people, the green is yellow that's gone bad, depending on, on your perspective. And that's the highest proof. Like, for a long time, that the was the highest is, proof. The green is the, is the higher the green's the, the high, the yellow's lower. It's yellow's like lower. So yellow is 45, lower, yeah. 45%, green is 55%. Yay, wow. Hey, speaking of taking a trip back to the 60s, we do that every uh, episode of the Accutron show. And, and one of the things besides relaunching the watch is that Hudson Distillery is involved in picking a specific uh, Accutron, I'm going to guess, a whiskey. Yeah, so so they came up uh, to, to take part in our barrel selection program to do a private bottling to celebrate the relaunch of Accutron. Uh, and the, the single barrel program and kind of process to me is one of the more interesting things that I get to do throughout the course of the year. When you come to, to choose a single barrel, right, you're picking one of the parts of the sum and each one of those parts is going to impart a different piece of that overall picture so what's really awesome about it is and and i do my best at least when i host those visits to not involve myself in their selection process right because it's not about which of these samples in front of you is my favorite it's which communicates what it is that you want the people that are going to experience this to actually say right and, and when they get 10 bottles into it you don't want them being david got me into this barrel this is i got a hundred more of these to go yeah, yeah. Gonna- and, and i mean every situation is different we have collectors and like groups that'll do those same single barrels for that same purpose right to put something unique from a brand that they love on their shelves and share that with a group of like-minded people uh, but what i loved about kind of the accutron visit is that you know, there were opinions in the room and people weren't afraid to share them. And that's the best way to go through that process. Because what you don't want to have is one person that everyone looks to like, okay, so what's Bill thinking? Or, okay, like, you know, I don't... Wait, I, I don't mind that. But I guess <laughs> you're right. You know, the purposes. For that and, you know, to think, especially because it's different when you're a brand that's coming up to make a selection like that versus a bar that might already have a cocktail in mind that's looking for something that's going to play nicely with other ingredients, you know, where this is really kind of meant to be something enjoyed in in the way that the folks who receive them and have the opportunity to interact with them will. Um, I think that what was chosen was was really unique. So now there's a, an affiliation or a marriage of two companies that are American bred and are uh, taking a little time travel back to the 60s when uh, an old-fashioned was the drink of choice and Accutron was the watch of choice. It's funny how some of those things never change, right? <laughs> Everything old is new again. The old-fashioned is still the number one cocktail in the world. We were talking a little earlier about bars and how some things never change. Yeah. Um, and a, bit, a little bit about drinking habits and these kinds of things. I love the fact that bars are these gathering places. To me, it feels like a, a really fundamental part of the human experience. But we've seen some reporting uh, that millennials are drinking less. Now, I blame David. It's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> you can find me in a bar from four to four every night. Yeah, it's called his office. We already it's learned he's got hours, tons yeah. of hooch. In the-, the other thing that's happened is like Tinderfication and Bumblefication and first datafication of all of these cocktail dens, right? Like I remember nights where I'd have a full bar in front of me and everyone is paired off and no one's interacting with the person that they didn't come there with. Right. That's interesting. So there's a whole lot more personal agenda that people are bringing into bars with them. 
that than than what there used to be, right? Where before it was the bar is my Tinder. I'm going to go and meet a new person <laughs> right. here because uh. there are other people here that obviously want to hang out and engage. Where now with a lot of those places, you, you see people that are coming there to engage very specifically. They, to engage with someone they're, they're arriving with. Yep. Yeah. And so when I they would... go there in 10 years, what are they going to be drinking? What's the spirit of the future in your opinion? You know that almost everyone that's attempted to predict the future has been wrong. Um, and I take nine point nine nine nine. Is that how we got Rye? Is yeah. that how Rye made this unbelievable <laughs> comeback? Yeah, yeah. Because nobody, I, I don't think, no one saw really that coming. Thought that that was a thing, you know. Like, and I take Back to the Future too as like my best reason for not making predictions because I still don't have air mags, I still don't have a hoverboard, and cars are not flying. So I'm disappointed, you know. And in that, I don't want for in ten years you guys to revisit this podcast and be like. David gave us all these Jetsons level, you know, predictions, and here we are still drinking. David did old not fashions. predict 120 proof milk. <laughs> Post impeachment, I Before, bet they wish that that milk was 120 proof. Before we let you go, uh, top five bars in the world for you, man. Okay, keep in mind that this is my list, and that I am incredibly biased. So, Death and Co. Is going to be on that list. That's Great here in bar. New York City. That's that's here. It's a part of my career. I have scars to show it, and I'm proud of them. Um, what no, do you order there if I'm walking into Death and Co.? Man, um, for me, I, I'll peruse through the menu um, just to see what they're playing around with this particular season. But I'm not always there for the most stretching cocktail experience that I can have. Uh, and because I have the relationship that I do there, I can very often just leave it in the bartender's hands and say, this is kind of what I'm feeling and let them have a little bit of fun as opposed to having to be in that repetitive. Let me just make this drink because I got a ticket. Do you for find it. that fun or obnoxious when a customer comes in and says you choose? Uh, it depends on how busy you are. Right. So if I'm 10 tickets back and, you know, we're delayed on service, then. Yes, that can be slightly annoying. So to be clear, this is not a drink specific list for you. This is a hang specific. This is places you yeah. like to go. These are all right. Death and Co. What's uh, next? Death and Co. I would say uh, Swift in London is another oh, yeah. one of my favorites. Um, Little Red Door in Paris, absolutely awesome. And then to come back to the U.S., Sweet Liberty in Miami, hands down. My fifth, no is, pun intended. My fifth is going to be. Turf Club in San Diego. Oh. And Turf Club is a bit of a outlier, but I love them because- Is it at the track? Is nah, it at like- you would think, right? You, yeah. But it kind of feels like it once you're inside. And like, they just have this big uh, grill in the middle of the room. Their whole menu is raw meat by the, by the ounce weight. They bring you out the raw meat and you grill it yourself at like in the middle of the dining room. I love it. I go there like twice every time I'm at San Diego. It's amazing. <laughs> and they're a cocktail bar also, or they're just a they're they're bar like bar? a they're one of those good dives where you can right. trust everyone that works there, but yeah. you're not always necessarily there to ask them to make you a you're not there to drink cocktails. Yeah. You're there to, the you're there to drink cocktails and hang out. are sold separately. No, they're on the same check. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hudson Distillery has a brand ambassador. We like that that's a thing. We like that they come in and, and talk to us on the Accutron podcast. And today, David Powell has been our guest. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Uh, thanks for having me. And we still never explain the job, which lets you know how difficult it is to explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, like a finely tuned watch, we're out of time. For David Graver and Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy. Thanks for listening to the Accutron Show. 
Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building, until next time, Accutron Time. Set your tuning forks. Thank you.